if you have purpose in life that helps someone else, that's like purpose on steroids. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? This week's episode is sponsored by Tweaked Audio Earbuds and Headphones. Whether you're listening to music, podcasts, or audiobooks, great headphones can make a big difference. Tweaked Audio offers a full line of earbuds and headphones with a noise-reducing design compatible with iPods, iPhones, Android devices, and other MP3 players. And the color and design options are great. I'm a big fan of the Ricker model, which looks like it's made of wood. Look, if station wagons could have woody paneling in the 70s, then there's no reason that our earbuds shouldn't be woody paneled now. The best part is that Midlife Mixtape listeners can get 33% off any model from Tweaked Audio by putting in the code MM33 at checkout. Shipping is free too, and the headphones all have a lifetime warranty. So just go to Tweaked Audio, that's T-W-E-A-K-E-D-A-U-D-I-O, tweakedaudio.com, and put in listener code MM33 for great headphones at one third off. And now for our show. Hey, everybody. How are you? It's Nancy here, and I hope all is well. I just got back from family camp, and I have about four years of laundry to do before I catch up with everything. Also, three unexplained bruises on the back of my legs that I discovered last night that I suspect may have been earned when I was trying out the new inflatable rope swing in the lake last week. It was plainly built for children, but when has that ever stopped an intrepid family camper from trying something out? If you want to know more about this annual family vacation I've taken since gas costs 34 cents a gallon, head on over to midlifemixtape.com and look for a post called Adventure in the Tried and True, where I break it all down for you, much as I tried to break my own legs on the rope swing. It was really fun. Before I introduce today's guest, I wanted to let you guys know that I've got something special planned for the next episode. I am going to invite you, the listeners, to be my guests. So stay tuned when the interview ends to find out how I'm going to hand you guys the mic. I also wanted to say that this entire show was taped on my brand new fancy Heil sound equipment that I won at Podcast Movement 18, thanks to TalkShoe and Heil. So that's pretty exciting. The best part is that when I got the big box with all my winning equipment in it, there were two identical sets of headphones and mics and everything else. So because I'm a solo podcaster, I only needed one and I will be heading over later this week to donate the second set to YouthBeat at KDOL TV here in Oakland, where they're teaching Oakland youth tons of marketable skills in broadcasting and audio technology. I'm going to show them how to set it all up and use it and everything. So I will be posting some pictures for sure. And thanks again to TalkShoe and Heil. Doesn't it sound like I'm right in your ear? I am super excited about sharing my conversation today with journalist Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Barb is the New York Times bestselling author of Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Barb worked for NPR for 19 years covering law and religion. She has received the American Women in Radio and Television Award twice, the National Headliners Award, and the Religion Newswriters Association Award for radio reporting. Her reporting was part of the NPR coverage that earned the network the 2001 George Foster Peabody and Overseas Press Club Awards after the September 11, 2001 attacks. 
Her work appears in the 2018 anthology of Best Science and Nature Writing from Houghton Mifflin. Before NPR, Barb covered law and economics for the Christian Science Monitor, and later served as the Monitor's Asia correspondent based in Japan. These days, she is a contributing editor for The Atlantic and lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, Devin. So let's reimagine midlife with Barb. So I'm here today with journalist Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Barb, thank you so much for being on the program. Oh, it's great to be here, Nancy. Well, I loved your book, and I'm looking forward to talking with you about it. But I did warn you that we have a standard icebreaker on the Midlife Mixtape podcast, which is, what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? I also told you not to panic about this. It's not a test. In fact, I did not panic, um, but I have to tell you, I don't really remember my first concert because I was such a geek and kind of such a student athlete that I never did did many concerts or things like that. But I do want to tell you about one concert I remember really well. So, as I said, I was a little bit of a geek. I discovered National Public Radio in the 1970s, and that was the only radio I listened to. So, like, this whole musical ship kind of sailed past me in the 70s and 80s and 90s and the aughts, you know. And so um, back when I was 43 years old, I was newly married. I married late. My husband emailed me one day when I was at NPR and he said, hey, do you want to go to a concert tonight? And I emailed back and said, sure, why not? Thinking I was actually finally going to get to be cool, you know, going to a concert in my 40s. Right. And so a little bit later, I was talking to a colleague and I let slip kind of intentionally that I was going to a concert that night. And he said, oh, who are you going to see? And I said, Bon Jovi. And he said, what? And I said, we're going to see Bon Jovi. <laughs> he said, who? And I said, Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi, B-O-N-J-O-V-I. <laughs> he goes, Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi, the boys talk. from New Jersey. That's Right. Oh. And he, they did not speak a word of French that night by... Were you disappointed? Très désolé. <laughs> there was no French oh, at Bon Jovi. Oh, dommage. <laughs> that was the last time I tried to be cool. Oh my God, that's <laughs> hilarious. Was it a good show? Did you have fun? Oh my gosh, yes. But there was a, this young man who was standing next to my husband and me, and he looked at us because we were kind of dancing around, and he looked at us and said, gosh, I wish my parents would act like you guys, oh, which did not exactly <laughs> make us feel young. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent story, Barb. Thank you for sharing it. And you know, this You're is welcome. a good chance for me to clarify to anyone who's listening, you know, the tagline is for the years between being hip and breaking one, that does not mean you ever have to have been hip to enjoy the Midlife Mixtape podcast. Alternatively, if you suddenly become hip or break a hip, like my friend Anne did in January, <laughs> you still can listen to this show. So we're very inclusive. I just want to make make that clear. And thank you for the reminder, Barb, to, to say so. Oh, my God. Okay, so you've written this book called Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. And I came across it because I was looking to speak with somebody who might have some insights on midlife career switching. And what I found instead was this book that encompasses so much more than just the, that kind of change that we make at midlife. And your book looks at midlife through a lens of 
scientific research in neurology, psychology, biology, genetics, sociology. I, right. I don't know if I missed any of the ologies. Yeah, you kind of. And you're looking at practices that show that this phase of life is more of a, a renewal than it is of crisis. And what I really liked about it is that you've done it in a narrative fashion. So it's not this dry science book. You really juxtapose it over your own experience moving through midlife. And I wanted to start by understanding how and why you decided to write it. You're right. I decided a personal narrative actually works the best. People really love stories. They relate to stories. So it was a, a fall day in September of 2012, and I had just finished a story for All Things Considered. And suddenly I felt this kind of heat and pain radiating up my back, right? And I felt short of breath. And so what did I do naturally? I Googled women heart attack, sure. right? And How am I going to die today? <laughs> That's right, here at my desk. <laughs> and so, so I called my doctor and he said, you need to get to the hospital right away. And then I fainted on him. So the next thing I know, I'm in an ambulance driving to the hospital. And by the time we get to the hospital, I'm feeling pretty good. I, I feel fine. My heart doesn't hurt. I'm not short of breath. I'm in pretty good shape because I spin every morning on, on you know, it's pretty intense exercise. And so I wanted to go home. And I remember talking to the nurse and saying, you know, I'm really fine. Let me just go home. And she looked at her chart and she says, oh, you're f 53, right? And I said, yes. And she said it like it was a disease, right? Like, <laughs> Why do they always do that? <laughs> right. And she said, I'm going to, I think we'll just keep you overnight for observation. So that night, actually, very ironically and very sadly, my dad died. Mm. Uh, he was 91 years old and I couldn't get out of the hospital. There I was in the hospital and my dad dies at home. And, you know, he had been ill for a while, but it was incredibly sad. And it, it was also poignant because it made me realize that, you know, I didn't have an infinite amount of time. I mean, my generation was the next to go. And so I began to think about this um, after mourning my dad and, and my mom's still alive, um, but she had a few scares. And I began to think about this and I thought, you know, it's been a while now and I've kind of felt flat and drab and unenthusiastic about things. And, you know, I've got a great life and yet I'm not appreciating it. I wonder if I'm going through a midlife crisis. And so, so what I decided to do is what any self-respecting journalist does. I called up the experts and I began to talk to people about did I have to have a midlife crisis? You know, it seemed, it seemed like a lot of effort, right? I would prefer <laughs> you know? to skip that, please. Thank you very much. I, please, yes. And so, um, so I be, that's how I really began the book is I thought I was having a midlife crisis and I decided instead of just succumbing to it, that I would actually see if I had to have one and lo and behold, I didn't. And that's the whole basis of the book. And really, very early on in the book, you dispel this notion of midlife crisis. You call it a faux midlife crisis because so much of the research shows that that's just a myth. Right. It is. So it turns out about 10% of people have this existential dread of dying you know, before they realize their dreams, which of course necessitates them quitting their job, dumping their spouse and buying a sports car, sure. right? Like <laughs> As you do. But 90% of people never have a midlife crisis. They're fine. But what I should say is if very few people have a midlife crisis, almost everyone has this midlife dip in happiness, and it's called a, a U, the U-curve of happiness. So scientists have looked at this all over the world and you know interviewed people, surveyed people, and it turns out that 
some po- at some point in midlife in America, it's age 45, people become really miserable. That's when people are the unhappiest when, when they're 45. Mm-hmm. The reason is because they're going through this shift of realizing that they may not become the CEO of their company, or they may not win an Oscar, or they probably won't be in, uh, you know, the pitcher for the Red Sox. And they're having to kind of give up those dreams and shift to things that are more within reach. And what happens is sometime in midlife, people start to make this shift away from accomplishment and acquisition toward people and purposes that give them meaning and joy. So family, friends, and meaningful things to do in their life that that kind of um, help other people, that give them meaning and joy. And when people do that, what happens is they begin this lovely swoop up the U-curve of happiness so that someone who is on a walker at 79 is happier than a robust mm-hmm. man or woman at age 45. So we have that to look forward to. We get better. Life gets better. Well, I found the book reassuring because there are so many things that you researched and, and tried out yourself, because we should say you were the guinea pig <laughs> through the entire book, I was. Uh, that can I improve was. your quality of life here and now, but also into your older years and that were there were mindfulness techniques exercise right. you know engaging in new activities volunteering it's the same reason i found it a little overwhelming too because i thought oh my yeah. god i do a little volunteer work but i'm not doing 2 hours a week and yeah. i should take up piano again and all these <laughs> Things that I should be doing. And I I kept thinking, you know, okay, for every one thing that I am doing right, there's about seven that I'm not doing. And I'm not sure how the, where do I find the the time in the day? So I wondered if there, if you felt overwhelmed at any point or if if you felt some optimism that basically anything you do to keep you engaged and out in the community and working with a sense of purpose is better than not. Yes, that's that's exactly right. And I was exhausted by the end of this book. There's this... (laughs) making myself a guinea pig. But I should I should say that what you should do and what I learned is that you really have to decide on those things that are within your kind of natural wheelhouse. So by midlife, you know what you're good at. You know what you like doing. I did, did this kind of failed experiment where I would take my dog, Sandra Day. Okay, stop for a minute. Her dog was named Sandra <laughs> Day, everybody. How much do you love that? We wanted a smart blonde, but Hillary was too divisive, so we went with Sandra Day. And so Sandra Day and I would go to the hospital every other Wednesday night, and we would talk to people, kind of visit patients and bring them good cheer. And what both Sandra Day and I decided, what we learned fairly quickly, was it was exhausting for both of us, and we didn't really like doing it. Did you and Sandra Day have a heart-to-heart over a bowl of kibble? She was- We're walking to the ho- into the hospital, and you know how the doors open when you approach them? Well, she was kind of <laughs> dreading going to the hospital. She was sniffing every flower, every blade of grass, oh, anything boy. to avoid going into the hospital. And then she finally just sat down. Down before lay down before we went in and she's like barb i do not want to do this anymore and i'm like i'm with you and i have to say i loved that whole section of the book because you kept contrasting it to the other lady and her dog who was like oh let me see that patient oh let me run to that patient and sandra day was like oh hell no oh. i'm gonna stay over here <laughs> So that's so true. Although Sandra did learn that six o'clock was a great time to go because people would like feed them her, their hamburgers or their food. You know, I'd turn away for a second and then she'd be, I'd look back and she's 
gulping down someone's hamburger. But what I discovered is, you know, that wasn't right for me. It wasn't right for Sandra. So what you have to do is decide what what's really good for you. I like mentoring young journalists. And that's actually how I kind of do my volunteer work. I invest in young people. It doesn't have to be, you know, you're working at a homeless shelter or you're reading to the blind. It can be, it should be something that you're already good at. And, and I actually think there's a difference between volunteering and pro bono, which is pro bono is for people, I think, in midlife who are really good at what they do and they can use their skills to help other people as opposed to volunteering, which is you don't have to be good at it and you may or may not contribute. So I I just think you should focus on what you're good at, what you like contributing, how you like investing in other people, and and go for that rather than trying to do everything. I get asked a lot to do volunteer work that's writing, and I hate it. As soon as I start doing it, I'm so resentful because that's what I'm doing all day long. And I've realized that when I volunteer, it has to be something really right. different that I, you know, something that I like to do, obviously, but something that I'm not doing in my day job. So there's lots of ways that you can use volunteering at midlife to stretch your muscles. And in fact, you have a story in there about a guy who starts doing a lot of work with his church. He's a kind of a business focused guy and then starts doing more and more with his church, right? Right, right. And and actually, this is this actually goes to the issue of career. Because what I don't think uh, people should do in midlife is just quit their job and, you know, become an organic farmer. That that usually doesn't work out so well. Um, and so what this guy did is he really realized that it, he felt a, kind of a call to ministry. And he was a banker. He was a mortgage banker. And he began volunteering at church. And then he went to divinity school. And it took him a while to get through divinity school. But he finally got out. And then he got a job as a minister. And the point of that story is that he dipped his toe in the water, which is really what I recommend for people to do. They don't just quit your job. Do volunteer activities. You know, do you like to work on the board of your school? Um, I talked to a woman who did that and she ended up becoming the principal of the school, a Montessori school. So the point is just really look at what you love doing, but don't just jump into it. Test it out for a while and make sure it's what you want to do for the long term. Because you know, at this age, when we're in our in our midlife, we have about we probably have another 20, 25 years of work ahead of us, mainly because we can't afford to retire at age 65. But also who wants to retire at age 65? I don't want to play golf at 65. I want to do something meaningful. So the point is, when you're in midlife, look around, go, what can I do? What will get me up in the morning? You know, get me excited every day until I'm 70 or 75. What is going to be exciting and purposeful for me that'll bring me joy and also help other people until later in life? And the people who do that, they are really happy and they're really healthy. Right. Well, my big takeaway was that you need the engagement, you need that sense of purpose, and you right. need loving relationships. Those are, you got it. You got it. Those are the two secrets to midlife. And, you know, um, as to relationships, <laughs> one of the surprises there was it doesn't have to be family. In fact, some of the research shows that people w- with a network of friends do better, like, you know, recover more quickly from cancer and keep their memories intact and all of that. Those with uh, friendships are actually more important to health and family. And and the reason is, scientists believe, is because, you know, you can kind of drop the friends that are a burden or or a pain, but you can't do that with family. You know, you can't just drop your in-laws or whatever, or that incredibly difficult aunt or nephew or whatever. So 
family can be a stressor, but friends, friends are really, really important to cultivate. And one of the ironies is at midlife, we're so busy that we tend to drop our friendships. And I think that's a bad idea. You should, you should, doesn't mean that you're going to be like, as you were in college, where friends are everything, uh, aside from studies. But it does mean that you should kind of um, keep an oar in the water, keep your friendships alive, because they're going to become increasingly important to you as you as you go through, you know, the second half of life. Well, another part of the book that I loved, and I'm sorry because it involved you getting electric shocks, but the <laughs> can you explain that experiment where your friend came and held yeah. your hand while you got electric shots? That oh was God. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was painful. Um, so, so sorry to make you relive we went, it. My, that's okay. Ow, uh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, so my friend Cherie Harder and I went down to UVA, uh, and where a, a scientist named Jim Cohn had been doing experiments on friends, people with close relationships. And basically, here's how the experiment worked. He put me in a brain scanner. And and before I went into the brain scanner, they put a little anklet on my ankle. And that anklet would give me, at random times, electric shocks. And so here's how this experiment went. They put me into the brain scanner, and I could see a screen above me. And if I saw a white zero, that meant that I was going to get an electric shock in the next five seconds or so. But if I saw a red X, that meant that I had a one in five chance of getting an electric shock in the next five seconds, right? And they they did it under three conditions. One is where I was all alone. Another where I was holding the hand of a stranger, one of the technicians. And the third, when I was holding Cherie's hand, okay, a friend, someone close, someone I trusted. What happened is after the first shock, you know, he told me it would be like, oh, it won't hurt very much. It's just like walking across a carpet in wool socks and you touch an electric, you know, something, uh, something electric or you touch the TV and it's a small little shock. Well, wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So they give me the electric shock and it is really painful. And so after that, the experiment was in full gear because every time I saw that X, my mind went into to flight mode. Right. Oh my gosh, get me out of here. And what, what they found out at the end of this experiment, and they've done it with many, many people, mother and child, spouses, good friends, brother and sister. What they found is that when you were holding no one's hand or the hand of a stranger, the fear centers of your brain just lit up like a Christmas tree whenever you would see that red X. It's like, help me get me out of here. But when I was holding Cherie's hand, or when you're holding the hand of someone you trust, your fear centers don't light up. It's as if your brain is going, hey, you know what? No big deal. Yeah, you're going to get an electric shock, but that's not a problem because, hey, Cherie's here. She's going to help you out of this mess. And it's a very surprising conclusion, but they think that this is something that evolved. What Jim Cohn told me is, you know, imagine that you're ancestor 10,000 years ago is walking through uh, the forest and suddenly he sees a bear. And if he's alone, the fear centers of his brain go, run, run, run. Now say the next day he's walking along and he sees a bear, but he also sees this other tribesman from another, you know, tribe a little ways away. And the fear centers get a little bit less agitated because suddenly he you don't have to run faster than the bear. You only have to outrun <laughs> like the other tribesmen, right? <laughs> but say you are out with your buddy, your ancestor is out with your hunting buddy, they see a bear. Suddenly the bear is not a threat. The bear's dinner. 
<laughs> that's what friends do. They help you cope with the slings and arrows of life. They help you get through the traumas of life, both, you know, kind of physiologically and neurologically and emotionally and psychologically. Friends help us get through. And that's, that's a huge takeaway for me. And it's actually changed the way I think about things because I'm, you know, much more conscious and intentional about my friendships. Yeah. And I think it is extra hard at midlife. We just are all juggling so many things and you know, you love your friends, you want to spend time with them, but they're in the same boat. I I feel like this happens to me a lot where I exchange 40 texts with somebody trying to figure out a time to get together for a drink. And then we end up not going because it just doesn't work. But, and can I mention, can I mention the other thing, Nancy, that was truly the secret weapon, which you've alluded to, we've already talked to a little bit. And that's this notion of purpose in life. If you have a reason to get up in the morning and it can be a hobby, it can be, Oh, I'm going to learn Spanish. I'm going to learn ballroom dancing. You know, for me, it was, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to start cycling. If you have a reason to get up in the morning, everything goes better. So um, neurologically, you know, your brain, you retain your memories better. You're less likely to have a stroke or heart attack. Your immune system works better. Everything is better if you have the sense of purpose in life. In fact, scientists have shown that people with purpose in life, even a small purpose in life, tend to stave off the effects of Alzheimer's, even if they get Alzheimer's. They don't lose their memories if they have purpose in life. It's just a stunning finding. And then if you have purpose in life that helps someone else, that's like purpose on steroids. And that's meaningful for you and it's meaningful for them. And so if I were going to say anything to people, it's to, to find a kind of a reason to get up in the morning, something you're excited about. And if it can be about helping other people, you're really, you're really in the sweet spot. Well, that resonated with me because my dad who passed away a couple of years ago, my, uh, at, at age 82, my brother and sister and I used to laugh because we, we <laughs> dad wakes up every morning convinced that his local fire department and the summer camp that we all went to will fall apart if he is not literally like up out of bed with a coffee coffee, making it all happen. And he was an active volunteer and fundraiser and constructive criticism giver to both organizations. Uh (laughs) So that part of it, I just, as I was reading it, I kept reading parts out loud to my husband and saying, hey, there's my dad. There he is. It's so true. You know, Nancy, it's so true. And this isn't just anecdotal. I mean, that's a really great anecdote, but it's also, it's been shown by by scientists as well. Was there anything you expected to be helpful at midlife that wasn't anything that didn't make the book because it just was not the helpful thing you thought it would be? Boy, that is such a great question. I didn't include very much about spiritual practices because I feel like those are really individual. And I was not anyone to kind of give a whole lot of advice, although I did write a whole book about it. So <laughs> I wrote a book about spirituality and the science of spirituality. And that book, let's just give let's give the title a shout out. That's Fingerprints of God, The Search for the Science of Spirituality, which came out from Riverhead Press in 2009. That's right. And and the science, once again, shows that that spiritual experience is really important. It also shows that spiritual experience looks, <laughs> this is going to probably get some people mad, but whether you're a Christian, Jew, or someone who's spiritual but not religious, Muslim, whatever it is, Buddhist, it turns out that spiritual experience looks the same in the brain, no matter what religion you subscribe to. So the whole key, the whole point of that book is to connect with something larger than yourself. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, is the message of life reimagined, too. 
in many ways. Connect with something larger than yourself. So as someone who has had a journalism career, 20 years at NPR, and then before that, you were 10 years at Christian Science Monitor. How did writing this book change the way that you think about your own career and legacy at Midlife? That was probably the biggest change for me. I ended up, I was forced to actually, uh, because of my own health, I ended up getting a partially paralyzed vocal cord, which is not great for a radio reporter, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like you lose your voice. Not a plus. Right. And so what I decided to do, one of the reasons I ended up writing the book when I did, is I decided I needed to step back from daily deadlines and see if my voice would come back and the chronic pain would would lower, would ratchet down if I weren't on daily deadlines. And so I made this shift that wasn't entirely intentional. And when I was writing my book, what I found is that I really love long form. I love long form journalism. I love telling stories. I love making people care about things, about ideas through narrative. But that doesn't have to be daily journalism. It doesn't have to be slamming a piece on all things considered, you know, in two hours time. It can be a longer form. And so when NPR, while I was on book leave, when they offered the buyout, I thought, you know what, I've got to try to do this. I want to see if I can make it doing long form journalism. And so I, I was scared. I mean, I gave up arguably the best job in the world. I was religion correspondent for NPR. It's a great job. I love NPR. And yet I felt that I really needed for my own my own health, my own voice's sake, I needed to kind of make this shift. And what I discovered is that we all need to kind of do this at midlife. I talked to a, a psychologist who works with a lot of midlife people who are going through career changes. Uh, his name is Carlos Stringer. And, you know, he said, when you're at midlife, you've got a lot of biography behind you. You know what you're good at, you know what you're not good at, what you like doing, what you don't like doing. It's a perfect time to kind of reassess what you do on it. It's not, as I said before, what you need to do is not kind of jump into go from law to becoming, you know, um, a restaurateur or something like that. What you need to do is look at what he called your so sign. And your so sign is this kind of core of who you are, what you're good at, what you love. You know this early on. Like, for example, we found my kindergarten a report card when I was about, you know, 45 or so. And in the report card, it said, Barbie always listens very carefully to the stories and asks why people do the things they do. And then she added, and she's very dexterous with the scissors. Yeah. <laughs> but, How's that come into your later life? Do you, are you do those Lithuanian paper cuts? Yeah, you know, I do. <laughs> But here's the thing. Most journalists, most storytellers I know actually had this kind of experience where they knew pretty early on, hey, you know what? I'm not going to be a doctor because I hate blood. I'm not going to be an accountant because I hate numbers, but I do like telling stories. So that's what I'm going to do. And the whole idea of midlife is to look at your so sign and say, what am I good at? And how can I pivot on my experience and on my passions and on my talents? How can I pivot on those and try to make it more meaningful? And it doesn't mean that you have to leave your job. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do volunteering and you find out, you know what, I really do want to be in ministry or I really want to leave my legal profession and do pro bono or do, you know, work for a nonprofit legal organization helping people save their homes. And I talk to people like that. Maybe you, you, you pivot on your talents and your experience, but you do something that's more meaningful. And it's really important to do because you don't want to just hang on from 55 to 65, you don't want to do that. You want to start putting in place the building blocks of something that'll use your talents and skills and passions for the duration. 
What I have always loved doing is long-form journalism that's investigative, that looks at problems in the legal system. So, for example, that's what I'm doing for The Atlantic. I just wrote a story where I reinvestigated a murder and found a lot of evidence that the wrong man has been in prison for 30 years and even may have found DNA to prove it. And that evidence has been sitting there in an evidence room uh, in the laboratory for 30 years, and now they're going to test it. How cool is that, Nancy? I want to cry because, you know, you're telling me this story a week after the person in the White House is calling the press the enemy of the people. I've got to say that, I I mean, I'm a glass half full type of person. And so what I've got to believe is that in the end, truth prevails. In the end, um, people will see that they really need the fourth estate. They need journalism because we hold people accountable. In the end, I, th- I have to believe that that's what's going to prevail. And so, you know, we just need to tough it out. We journalists, we just need to kind of put one foot in front of the other, see what the story is, see what the injustices are, what the lies are, whatever it might be, what the cover-up is. We just need to do it and just put on blinders so that we don't, we don't get affected by the hate mail because what we're doing is good and it's lasting, and it's valuable. It matters. Absolutely. All right. So Barbara Bradley Haggerty, one last question. What one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you, or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? I wish I could tell myself, and I do tell this to younger people, actually, young journalists, to wear bifocals. What? (laughs) That's really a (laughs) middle-aged image, right? Bifocals. Okay. So what I mean by that is, you know, I was so intent on my career that I missed one of the great joys of life, which is to have kids. I got married at 43. I lucked out. I have a great stepdaughter. I adore her. She's now 20, 24 years old. She's delightful. She's wonderful. I lucked out. But I tell journalists, especially female journalists, that you shouldn't sacrifice your life for your career. You need to keep an eye on the long term. Yes, you work really hard. You go for the prizes. You go for that investigative story. You know, you do you do what you need to do, but hold something in reserve and remember that when you get to be 65, when you turn over um, on that first day, you know, that you're not going to work every day and you, you look at the person next to you, it's not going to be NPR or the Christian Science Monitor or the podcast that's going to be lying next to you. It's going to be it's going to be someone that you value. It's really important to develop, to have family, to develop those relationships that are valuable to you, even as you're building a career. So that is what I, I wish I'd done better. I was lucky because I got such a great stepdaughter, but I do wish that I had been a little bit more conscious of, of family and building kind of a lasting legacy that was genetic and not just by, you know, by marriage. Uh, and so I tell people, just keep your eye on the long term as well as the short term. All right. I said that was the last question, but I have to ask <laughs> one final one. I know from looking at your website that Beloved Sandra Day is no longer yeah, with us. She died in, in February. Very quick death. I'm so sorry. And then I'm going to ask the follow-up question that everybody asks. Are you going to get a new dog and maybe call her RBG or something? <laughs> what are you going to do? We have a new dog. We have a puppy. <gasps> we have a puppy. Oh, um, Devin, happiest news. I know. Devin wanted a boy. I kind of wanted a girl still, but he. I won last time. So we got a boy. His name is <laughs> Marcus Aurelius. Um <laughs> He is he is not stoic, but we are his subjects, I must say. So he's five months old, a golden retriever, Labrador retriever mix, and he's a riot. 
Oh, fun. All right. You know, maybe you can send me a picture of Marcus Aurelius to go with the podcast. Why not? Uh, before we lost ours, we had Achilles, who was the, um, you know, named for the great warrior. Yes. There has never been a wimpier, more scaredy cat dog ever. <laughs> he once he once bolted away from a camellia blossom that fell off a tree in our yard. And my husband was like, that's it. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to do with him. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Marcus is not particularly reflective, although sometimes he looks that way. But then we realize he's just snoozing. <laughs> <laughs> he's just having gas. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barb, thank you so much, everyone. Of course, I'll leave links up to uh, where you can find Barb's book online. I highly recommend it. I found it really gratifying and encouraging and, you know, made me want to go out and do 18 more things. Just got to invent some more hours in the day. But uh, I, I think I think when you read it, you will feel better about middle age and you'll feel better about yourself. And Barb, thank you so much for being on the program. It's been a riot. Thank you so much, Nancy. And yes, I did get pictures of both Marcus Aurelius and Sandra Day. So head on over to the show notes page at midlifemixtape.com to see those two sweet puppies. Okay, so here's what's up with the next episode. I want to know from you, what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? You know, that's always the first question I ask my guests. And I love hearing the stories. I mean, come on, bonjour vie. Give me a break. That's funny. So now I want to hear your story. And there are a lot of ways for you to send it in to me. Number one, you can email me your story at dj at midlifemixtape.com. You can send me a tweet at midlifemixtape, although let's face it, 140 characters is probably not enough to capture all the glory that was your first concert. But if that is your jam, do it that way. You can also leave me a voicemail right from your computer, and I'm really hoping people will take advantage of this. So if you go to midlifemixtape.com, or if you're listening to this right now at Midlife Mixtape, you'll see a little blue button on the right-hand side that says, what was your first concert? Just press that button, and you can start recording directly from your computer with one click. I would really love for people to do this so I can use your words and your voice. Be forewarned, this one has a 90-second limit. So if your story is really a corker and you need more details, how about this? Record a voice memo into your phone and email it to dj at midlifemixtape.com. Again, it would be so cool to be able to hear and share your concert story in your actual voice. Come on, I know you guys have some great stories to share. Did your dad drop you off at The Who and then he sat in the stadium parking lot reading the newspaper? Did you get dragged to see the Little River Band by your mom and your aunts and you secretly loved it even though you don't want everybody to know? Did you tell your mom you were sleeping over at your friend Kitty's house, but then you actually drove to Canada and you went to see the Blow Monkeys? I don't know anybody who did that. Nope, not me. That was not anybody who I know. Look, inquiring minds want to know your story, so let me know by September 1st, please, and then tune in September 11th for the Roundup episode. All right, I'm excited about it. I hope you guys are too. Have a great week. Be, be, be. I wanna be, I wanna be free by whatever.